Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. We are entering the most dangerous phase of the pandemic for unvaccinated people. We are already seeing the warning signs of that. The people who are are the people who are unvaccinated. The people who are getting disease severe enough to go into the hospital are the unvaccinated. If you have travel plans this 4th of July, listen up. Dr. Greg Poland explains the risks and has some tips for those who have had the shot and those who haven't. If you're going to a location where immunization rates are low and community burden or numbers of cases are high, you're going into a danger zone. And you had better be immunized or take really strict precautions of masking and distancing and and to some degree hand sanitization. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, June the 28th, 2021. The 4th of July is almost upon us. It's next weekend. And for many families, this will mean gathering together for a summer celebration. What should those celebrations look like in the time of COVID, particularly for those who are not vaccinated yet? Well, here to discuss this with us today is Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert, a vaccine expert, and virologist. Thanks for being here, Greg. Of course. Good morning. How wonderful to see you today. Happy Monday again. Yeah, thank you. And I understand if possible in the next week or two, we're going to do uh, our podcast together in the same room, finally. Won't that be fun to finally yes. get to be together in the same room yeah. again? They're starting to, we're starting to loosen those up just a little bit on the, some of those restrictions. That's great. Say, Greg, how are we doing with vaccine numbers in the United States? That 4th of July deadline for 70% yeah. is right here. I, I, you know, I, I wish I could say that we were going to hit that nationwide. When you look at the whole population, uh, about 55% have gotten one dose of vaccine and uh, about 46 to 47% have been fully vaccinated. Now it gets higher if you just look at people, uh, you know, 18 and over, drops a little bit when you say 12 and older, the groups that have access to vaccine. But we've got a long way to go yet. Now, some states have done really well. I mean, you look at um, uh, Vermont, they're at, they're at over 70%. Wow. So, and other states that are in the 30s. So uh, quite a difference. It, 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 I, I marvel at it because it, I wonder if the people down in some of the Southeast states that have really low rates, would they look at the Northeast states and say, we know something you don't? There's still time. We have, we have this week. We do. And hopefully they'll get the message. That's right. So let's talk about gatherings. The 4th of July is coming up. What, what advice do you have for people about gatherings this year on the 4th of July? Yeah, um, you know, I, I by nature in a pandemic am a little more cautious or conservative. Uh, I, I would say even if you're fully vaccinated, if you're going to be in large crowded venues, wear a mask. If you're gonna be outdoors, my concern is for those who are unvaccinated or who don't have healthy immune systems, they should be masked. So what does that mean? Kids that are not eligible to get the vaccine yet, 
people who are eligible to get the vaccine who have not been fully vaccinated yet. And maybe elderly people with a lot of comorbidities, somebody who's very immunocompromised, for example, an organ transplant, they ought to be wearing masks when they're around uh, crowds or other people from outside their you know, immediate home environment. And that includes and, kids. No, go ahead, Greg, sorry. Yeah, that, that, in, that includes kids. I, I, uh, you know, the difference from last year at 4th of July is we had a very different virus circulating then. Now what we're seeing is the exponential rise of the Delta variant and even beginning infections with the Delta plus variant. And that's enough to give me pause to say these young kids that cannot get a vaccine yet uh, need to be masked in a crowded environment like that. Greg, one of our uh, listeners uh, posed an interesting question that they sent by email and I thought I would ask it of you. They were wondering about the comparison between how transmissible the Delta variant is with say another um, viral disease such as measles. Mm, that's, a, that's a very good question actually. Measles is something I've studied for uh, over 35 years now. Measles is the most contagious infectious disease that we know about. Oh, interesting. And, you know, we use, um, uh, I, I often joke, the only more contagious disease is fear and ignorance. But um, <laughs> measles, measles requires immunization rates of 95 to 97% to reach herd immunity. You know, we, we use a measure, it's, it's we, we have to nuance or maybe explain what it means, but people have heard about the reproductive number or R naught. That's a number that measures how widely a disease would get transmitted in the absence of any intervention or any other ways of inducing immunity. So okay. with, that, with that proviso, the, the R not a reproductive number uh, from measles, it can be as low as 12 to as high as 18. By contrast, that same number for seasonal uh, influenza is about 1.3. Now with these new uh, variants, uh, the, the original, I should say that the original strain, and this will, this will reinforce what I explained about R not the original strain was about two and a half to three, three and a half, something like that. As people have gotten immunized and infected, that reproductive number has dropped. So even though this Delta variant is almost 100% more transmissible than the original virus, the R not for that is still in the one four to one six range, something like that. The better metric is something called the effective reproductive number. That takes into account that it's always changing. As you might imagine, as more mm -hmm. people get immunized or infected, the less number of people there are to spread it to. And sure. that number is, uh, for COVID is, is less than one. So oh. it, it's, a, it's a motivating metric in terms of getting people immunized. So again, and you and I have talked a lot about this, 
we get immunized not only to protect ourselves, but per, to protect vulnerable people who don't respond well to the vaccine and kids who can't get vaccinated yet. And I think people really need to consider that in their decision-making. We get vaccinated to help protect other people in addition to ourselves. And so Greg, would it be correct to say that the Delta variant, it's more transmissible than, than the previous COVID variant, correct? Absolutely. In fact, a, a way to think of it, when you look at the original virus that circulated, then we developed the so-called UK or alpha variant. That alpha variant was about 50% more transmissible than the original. Now we've developed the Delta variant and the Delta variant is about 50% more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which was 50% more transmissible than the original virus. So should that make us more concerned about this uh, being aerosolized indoors, outdoors, on surfaces than the previous, than the original virus? Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly uh, it does have that implication for the primary reason that the reason or the mechanism by which it's more transmissible is in part viral titers or viral loads that are about fourfold higher. So you, okay. you can imagine if I had, you know, um, uh, 10 viral particles with the old virus and had the possibility of expelling those 10, now it's four, some people say in, in some circumstances, even up to tenfold higher. Now it's not 10, you know, it's four times that. It's 40 that I might be expelling. And of course, when we're measuring those titers, they're in the tens of thousands to millions. So a, a fourfold increase is a significant increase and risk of transmitting it, primarily by aerosol and droplet. Um, the, the notion of hard surfaces, um, I, I think it's been tough to show that somebody has touched a surface and then gotten infected. Mm -hmm. Surely it must happen. But as you might imagine, doing a study to detect is really difficult. Sure. That was a lot of talk about numbers, Greg. So <laughs> let's turn our um, thoughts toward travel for a little bit. No. Have you seen how busy the airlines have been? It is absolutely amazing how many people are starting to travel this uh, yeah. summer. What recommendations would you have for travel? You know, again, I, I have concerns and this is a moving target. So what I would say today is different than what I might say three weeks or a month from now, because this is a very dynamic situation. I think it depends on a number of factors and it's really hard to say one blanket term. If you're going to a location where immunization rates are low and, and community burden or numbers of cases are high, you're going into a danger zone and you had better be immunized or take really strict precautions of masking and distancing and and to some degree, hand sanitization. If you're, you know, fortunately uh, in the exuberance for pretending that the pandemic is over by eliminating almost any kind of requirements, fortunately, when it comes to bus and train and airline travel, 
they have preserved the requirement for proper masking. That's really important when we see, and you have to realize when you're on an airplane, you potentially are in an airplane with people who are infected, who may not know it, some who know it and get on an airplane anyway, people traveling from other regions of the US and of, from, from the world, you don't know what variants they're carrying. You don't know how symptomatic they are. You don't know the health of their immune system. And so you're wise to take all of that into account. And when you're around indoors, groups of people that you know, are not in your bubble, so to speak, uh, I think you should wear a proper mask properly. Now, why do I say that? even if you've gotten two doses of vaccine, it sounds a bit contradictory. Well, it's true that if your immune system is healthy and you've gotten fully vaccinated, so two provisos there, your risk of getting hospitalized or dying is low, really, really low. It's not zero, but it's low. Your risk of getting moderate to mild disease is a little higher. Your risk of getting asymptomatic disease, a little higher yet. Mm. And the issue is not what kinds of symptoms am I experiencing right now? It's will I pass this on to other people? And might I have so-called long COVID, even from mild, moderate, or asymptomatic disease? So it's not just, am I gonna die or be in the hospital? That's important especially at a public health level. But there are secondary considerations. Am I going to pass it on to my child, to my coworker who might uh, be immunocompromised? Um, or am I going to develop mild to moderate disease and end up with a long-term side effect? You brought up a couple of questions that I want to ask. But first, I just wanted to comment about the travel. Now, Tim and I, um, have been on an airplane. We uh, went to a grandchild's uh, birthday, yeah. actually. And I, it, it is kind of fascinating that now uh, I'm sort of starting to adjust to not get that anxiety when I go in mm. a, a public venue where everyone isn't wearing masks, because that's quite common now. But in the airport, that was the one place where everyone was wearing masks again, and on the airplane. So it was very interesting. In fact, they made note that you should only move your mask down to take a sip of your drink or a taste of your snack, etc., yeah. and then have your mask back in place. Yeah, that's so. really good. And, you know, unfortunately, we have people who really suffer from misinformation and disinformation that uh, cause a lot of issues and problems. The reason we have Delta, the reason we have Delta Plus is from unimmunized individuals who get infected. And every time somebody gets infected, we run the risk of a new variant. Now, Greg, I had read that um, the COVID deaths that are occurring are primarily only among the unvaccinated. Is that true or not true? In, in fact, you're right, Helena. In the U.S., this would not be true for other areas of the world, but in the U.S., 99.2% of the COVID deaths are in unvaccinated people. Now, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and on, on that last show, I predicted that we are entering the most dangerous phase of the pandemic for unvaccinated people. 
we are already seeing the warning signs of that. The people who are are the people who are unvaccinated. The people who are getting disease severe enough to go into the hospital are the unvaccinated. And unfortunately, and it grieves me, this includes kids and young adolescents who don't have a choice about getting the vaccine, but whose parents or uh, other relatives that they're exposed to have chosen not to get the vaccine and spread it to them. So Greg, another question that we frequently um, receive is about boosters. Mm. Should anyone be getting boosters? And should those who've had perhaps organ transplants be receiving boosters? Well, you actually put your finger, uh, Helena, on the, on the most important, I think, immediate question. So just to be clear, in the US right now, there are no recommendations for a booster for anybody under any condition. Okay. Now, as you and I know, because we've practiced medicine for a long time, there are nuances and there's the art of medicine. So we don't have science-based recommendations yet because the science has not all been done. So let's take the case of solid organ transplant patients. They're among the most immunosuppressed. So how do we protect them? Well, the studies have shown, and I'm gonna simplify because there are a number of studies, but after one dose, you maybe get protection in the low teens. After two doses, about 30 to 40% of transplant patients can be protected. After three doses, and I'm talking about mRNA vaccines now, they've been able to demonstrate protection up to about the 70% level. So uh, I was on a, a phone call last week with uh, senior decision makers in, in the US about this. And you know, we, we talked very freely about the fact that we need more data. We're keeping an eye on these variants. It is likely to be the variants over anything else that might push us toward a booster. So again, we're seeing a, an effect we need never have worried about had we been able to get people to wear masks and get vaccines. So I think we'll first see recommendations in people who are highly immunosuppressed. I think it's very much an open question at this point as to whether otherwise healthy people will need vaccines. Possibly we'll see a recommendation in the elderly, but again, we don't we full uh, a measure of what's called a correlate of protection. And even those correlates of protection for the most part ignore cellular immunity, which is uh, an arm equally as important as antibody. So a lot of work and research to be done. I think where we'll make that decision is when we start, if we start seeing breakthrough infections occur at greater rates over time in certain subpopulations like organ transplants or immunosuppressed or the elderly. But at this point, I, I think we're doing the right thing in preparing for the idea, mm -hmm. but I think any recommendation at this point would be premature. Okay, so for now, get the vaccine the way that it is intended to be administered, mRNA, two doses, Johnson & Johnson, one dose. Okay. Absolutely.
All right, on another topic, um, it has been of great interest to me how troubled uh, some of the individuals that I have known, even some colleagues of mine, by the loss, uh, the loss of taste and smell that has occurred oh, when they've had a COVID infection. And um, it's been a little bit unknown. I've had patients who came in months after they had uh, had COVID and still had that loss. And there's some new information about that. What is it, Greg? Well, yeah, you know, this is this is really interesting, and this was a study that was uh, just started to be talked about and, and released. So, so two things happen. One is the recovery of taste and smell, and at least in the regard of smell, uh, there was a study of I think it was fifty-one individuals where they actually did objective tests, in other words, ways of measuring smell, and what they found was that a very, very high percentage, I believe it was 96% of people had fully recovered their sense of smell by eight months by objective measures. What's interesting is that more than half of them believed that their sense of smell had not recovered. Now, this leads to another interesting phenomena that we've seen as a post-COVID uh, syndrome. In fact, I was interviewed this morning about it, and it's, it's called uh, parasomnia. So it's basically the idea that uh, people begin to smell a phantom smell. Um, the particular person I talked to this morning could not get away from, he's always smelling what smells like a campfire. Another individual I talked to smells rotten eggs. Oh. Uh, other individual, you can imagine how distressing that yes, would be. Another, another individual where coffee, if you can imagine, or meat has a rotted smell to them. And uh, we could kind of envision a mechanism by which this would happen as you have uh, a distorted recovery of the uh, blood supply to damaged nerve cells as those nurse, nerve cells begin to regenerate or recover from that. So I think still a lot to learn when it comes to sensory perceptions, those can be hard to objectively measure. Um, and our own sense of it is by nature subjective. Um, I, I lost my sense of smell after I got influenza one year. And as best I can tell, it's probably 90, 95% recovered, but that took a few years in my case. So uh, these are, this is not unknown to us with viral infections. It's very interesting. I think if you could pick a smell, maybe it should be something like s'mores for the 4th of July. Or coffee. Or coffee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Dark chocolate. <laughs> Anything else you want to share with our listeners today? Greg? Oh, let's see. Uh, I, I think a couple of I think a couple of other things to think about when we think about immunization. Only 10% of the rest of the world is vaccinated. So again, when we travel, you know, wow. I, I, you know, by nature as a physician, I'm an observer. I'm an observer of people and their habits. And as best you can guess by listening to language, uh, maybe seeing type of dress or something, you're frequently traveling with people that come from a variety of countries, particularly if you're flying internationally or into big 
international hubs here in the in the US. So it's it's really I, I think important to think about that. Another interesting thing uh, you may remember way back when we talked about the phase three clinical trials, there was a slight imbalance of Bell's palsy in yes. one of the trials. What's interesting is it's becoming more apparent that Bell's palsy can be a complication of COVID. And just for our listeners, Bell's palsy is where you, you, you lose generally temporarily the uh, function of a muscle that controls face muscles. So you'll see you know, somebody where the side of their face is, is flat looking compared to being able to smile with the other side of their face. It's a very distressing thing to have yeah. happen. So we're beginning to learn about almost every organ system being affected by COVID disease compared to the rare uh, but limited side effects, generally very temporary, temporary, that can occur due to COVID vaccines. And so again, you know, I, I caution our listeners, think about the huge risks related to COVID disease and the teeny risks, risks that are present, but are so small, we have not been able to measure them until we have hundreds of millions of people vaccinated. We're over 300 million vaccines administered in the US. And you can barely see those little signals compared to the obvious things that happen with COVID. That's really amazing. Yeah. That's quite the perspective. Thank you, Greg, for being here today and for sharing that. Of course. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic, for being here again with us today to give us our COVID-19 update. We wish each of you a very safe 4th of July and get vaccinated. You still have time to help us make that 70%. I hope that you learned something today. I know that I did. We wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.